Welcome to Group Talk. Four shows, one podcast from the Small Group Network focusing on topics relevant to small group ministries. Whether you're in a church of 100 or 10,000, whether you're a volunteer or staff, we want to support, encourage, and equip you to lead well. So relax, listen, and enjoy Reading Lens with Nick Lindsay. Hey, Small Group Network, welcome back to another episode of Reading Lens. We're so glad that you chose to take time to hang out with us. Here's how Reading Lens works. Each month, I have a guest with us who is also a Small Group's point person to share with you insights from books we are reading and what our takeaways were and how we plan to incorporate them into our lives, leadership, and our small groups. Today, we have with us Tommy Carreras back with us again. And it feels so good to be back. It really does. Awesome. Um, I highly recommend if you haven't yet hear Tommy's first episode on Reading Lens. I think it was back in March. And we did the book Tribe by Sebastian Junger, which was just a killer episode. I don't think I've told you this, Tommy. It was the episode I was, that I was like, all right, I know this show is going to work. I can move forward. <laughs> so it was really great that like, you know, you, you're working out those episodes. And then I feel like that was the episode I was like, all right, we picked a book that had nothing to yeah, do yeah. with groups and, but yet had everything to do with groups at the same like, time. Concept has been proven. It's yes. a beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I thank you for yeah. being a part of that journey uh, uh, inside pleasure. of that. So yeah, yeah, actually it wasn't March. It was probably way sooner than that. But anyways, Either way, yeah. just search for uh, tribe and you and you'll find it in there. But so mm-hmm. since we last talked, Tommy, you have actually moved from you've left Ventura, California, and moved to Nashville, yes. Tennessee. So share with our audience what led to that. Dude, it is so hot here. I left paradise. <laughs> I don't I don't know you what don't I'm like thinking. Humidity? But uh, no, it's I grew up with it and then was really <laughs> okay that I had left it forever. And apparently I was not leaving it forever. Yeah, we uh, my wife and I made what felt like a quick, but that's because we couldn't handle the sadness for any longer um, than we needed to. Uh, we made a really quick and really large decision to move toward where our family was. Um, we live now a block and a half from my sister-in-law and my kids' cousins. Awesome. And um, I'm two minutes away from my in-laws and it is really wonderful. Uh, I also left the best place with the best people. Best weather, <laughs> yes, but like... I left my family and there, <laughs> my church family, and it was yeah. heartbreaking. And I just, I realized throughout all of it too, um, and, and it was the right decision. It was good. We're being obedient. Obedience is often very painful. I've yes. learned that. Um, but it was the right kind of pain. It was like, a, this is weird because I'm calling myself Paul. I'm not, but it was like a <laughs> Paul in Ephesians, like, oh my gosh, I'll see you because we have like planes and FaceTime. But this hurts at the yeah. deepest level I have. And that's a beautiful thing. I was really thankful for that on the way out. I got to leave on the, a beautiful note. And I was really thankful for that because I know that we don't always get really healthy churches that we're a part yeah. of. And that it's heartbreaking when it's not, but this is a really beautiful thing. And so, um, yeah, we are on to a uh, new and strange and different adventure for the next season, which is cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to throw a joke in there too when you compare yourself to Paul. It's like, <laughs> except you went from Rome to Jerusalem instead of Jerusalem to Rome. That is true. Leaving, is leaving California weird, to go to Nashville. But weird yeah. culture shock. There are there's more than 5% Christian, and that's a lot yeah. to me. There's <laughs> a lot more yeah. than 5%. But I'll tell you what, yeah. us, what our, our like coast mentality, though, like there's still uh-huh. so many lost people oh, in the middle. Yeah. It's so true. We forget it's that true. too. But yeah. yeah. So, but a big difference between five and like 20%. 
you know, like <laughs> <a big> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or whatever that statistic difference. is, but exactly. Yeah. Cool. So you moved back to Nashville, you're closer to family. Did you move for the family or is there something else that you had in mind of why you moved back? We really moved for the family, but it's, there's some amazing timing, um, that worked out, uh, in a crazy way. It's a much longer story and, and we're going to have a really long conversation today. I'm sure. So I'll try and keep it short, even though I'm prefacing. Um, but there were some things that we got to start doing at mission, uh, in, in uh, concurrence with and in, in relationship with a guy that was at Mission, uh, he and his wife had created some recovery uh, relapse prevention counselor training 35 years ago. And it was like the cutting edge of brain science at the time, which is, it's not cutting edge anymore, wow. but it's like, it's been in the works for so long and they ported it over what they learned, which was wildly effective, super exciting. And it changed how they did recovery ministry. It was incredible. But then they actually ported it over to the church because They were like, well, they're all addicts too, but theirs are socially, their addictions are socially acceptable, but everybody's got the same problem at the core. How do we change people's hearts? I think we have something to offer. And they poured it over to the church world. And it's been in churches for a long time. But what we started this incredible relationship. And we actually, um, my wife and I are getting the chance to do, like, kind of take up the mantle of what they yeah. have created and what they've figured out and be able to kind of carry the baton now. Um, they're older and uh, ready to ready to rest a little bit. Um, but now we get to carry the baton forward and, uh, figure out what it looks like to implement the amazing experiences, group experiences and, and training and all these things that they've created, um, in churches like ours and like, uh, we have been in and it is, it has been super exciting yeah, so far. I'm, I'm super excited for that because I really respect you as one of the fresh young minds inside of the group world, which is why I kind of wanted you for this one too. And, geeking out on on the science i know that you're going to really enjoy but um to be able to take something as serious as that recovery and be able to bring group elements to it like i'm super excited for you and what what you can develop and then the bonus is you're in nashville so hopefully you find the publisher yeah. that kind of helps get this yeah. out to the audience that it needs to be but be exciting yeah yeah. So if they're interested, should yeah. they reach out to you? What's what's that look like? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll throw my website in the show notes. Cool. Uh, but yeah, we've got a couple things uh, starting. We're, we're in the beginning phases of it, but ready to ready to get some stuff rolling. And, and we've got some cool stuff in the works. But yeah, cool. All right, well, let's dive into today's uh, book. So we have a hit book that we're doing today. Tommy, why don't you tell me about the book that we're doing? Yeah, this apparently has taken the church world by storm. And I'm so glad that it has. Yes. And I'm so glad that you picked me. I feel like I got picked somewhere up first for kickball. Cause I'm like so excited about this book. Um, because it puts so many words to so many things that I have been trying to figure out and working on in some other ways. Uh, it just was like, Oh, well here are all the words you've been looking for. It is called the other half of, of the church. And it is all about spiritual stagnation and brain science and what Christian community looks like and how we were designed for it. And it is fantastic. Uh, it's written by a spiritual formation and discipleship guy. And then also a guy that calls himself a neurotheologian, which you win the time. <laughs> Title contest, <laughs> Jim Wilder. Uh, that's pretty much the coolest thing I've ever heard of. Uh, maybe that makes me uncool that I think that's cool, but yeah. that is just 
amazing. Yeah. Um, it does sound like a lot of school debt. But, that's yeah. a good point. That's a really good point. <laughs> so maybe we could just become that now that he wrote the book for us yep. or something like that. But it is it is beautiful, and I feel like we should all be shouting it from the rooftops because it it find it gives this hard proof in so many ways, and we'll mm-hmm. I will talk about this the whole way through. But it gives this hard and clear proof that it's going to sound a little weird, but like we were right. All of us people fighting for these slow and messy and like sometimes very unproductive feeling relationships in the church and going, no, we think this is like priority one. We've been yelling about it for so long and apparently we were right. Yeah. (laughs) Shocking. I know. It's also science describing or proving what, what has been true in the scriptures for so long. Right. Mm-hmm. And finally giving us a way to see it through our Western modern eyes. It's so yeah, true. Exactly. Yeah, it's been there the whole time. I want to give a big shout out to uh, Chris Stanridge, who, who's the first person to post this in our small mm-hmm. group network, Facebook group. Just one more reason to be there. You're going to get awesome book recommendations. So he posted this in August and literally six weeks later, here we are doing this, this podcast. There you go. Well done, Chris. Steve talked about this on his podcast, Inside Saddleback, a few weeks ago as well. I know their discipleship pastors are walking through that. You get to hear from Brandon mm-hmm. inside that episode, which was really good. And so we're going to attempt to... to take a stab at this as well today. This this episode is going to be a little bit different of Reading Lens in that usually we focus a lot more on application and how we mm-hmm. applied what we learned from these books. Mm-hmm. I got to be honest, this book is so fresh and mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of a group launch myself. I don't think I've even had time to teach some of these principles. Some of it's stuff that we've always been doing and you get to see the, ah, that's why that works. So yeah. we'll definitely point out some of that stuff. But yeah. um, I think you guys are going to really enjoy this this book. So let me just give you a little bit of the book summary here. Uh, they'll give you an idea of where we're going to go in today's episode because we're going to be doing more of an outline kind of focus for today. But in the other half of the church, Pastor Michael Hendricks, he's the groups guy. He's from Flatirons. And neurotheologian Jim Hendricks, obviously the brain guy, uh, mm. couples brain science in the Bible to identify how to overcome spiritual stagnation by living full-brained faith. They also identify four ingredients. Those four ingredients are what we're going to really do in this episode. Develop and maintain vibrant transformational community where spiritual formation occurs, relationships flourish, and toxic spread of narcissism is eradicated. We're not going to touch mm-hmm. the, nar- the narcissism piece today, but this it's just another reason to jump into this book because... There's, there's a lot of depth to this book. And mm-hmm. I also feel like it's a book that like I know I'm not going to do once because I feel like I need to mm-hmm. go back and reread it, which is really interesting because when I do books for this podcast, I try to read them at a, at a good depth so that I can talk about mm-hmm. them. But this one's still like, I don't know that I was meant to understand brain science like this. Like, it's like a first phase and then apply it all <laughs> and then go back through and realize, oh, we've got five more phases and then phase two yeah. and then apply it all. <laughs> a little yeah. bit at a time. Yeah. This might be an old reference for, for some of our audience, but uh, I, I like to compare myself to um, Tim Taylor from Home Improvement, where <laughs> every episode he'd go over to his really wise and smart neighbor, Wilson, and he uh, would go get life advice. And then Tim would come back and he would try to tell that life advice to his wife, Jill, and it would just be a jumbled mess. And so <laughs> that's so what I beautiful. feel like a lot of my life is, uh, is like so trying to regurgitate these things that I've been learning. But um, yeah. when it comes to neuroscience, we're going to try our best at this. But th- all the more reason I'm going to pass this to you 
Tommy, why is it called the other half of the church? The whole idea is that we have been living out a left-brained Christianity, primarily left-brained Christianity in the church. And it really goes back to the Enlightenment era. So we became, I loved this quote, we became brains on a stick in the 1700s. It was, I think, therefore I am. And that was a radical shift that formulated what the West is. But it was a radical shift in thinking It was a huge overcorrection, now we see, but it was this correction to go, okay, well, let's figure out what thinking really means and let's become intensely logical, have a right answer for everything. Apologetics became something that were a thing. I don't think it was was the same kind of thing before, as in I have to disprove your thing because you proved this and we've got all these proofs. And everybody else was like, dude, the proof was in the pudding. And they were like, (laughs) no, no, no. The proof is in the ingredients list and then the, the very thorough explanation of why the ingredients interact with each other. Yeah. And then everybody else for the rest of human history was like, what? So <laughs> it's this idea that we've shifted so far and that we've become so uh, obsessed with this idea that transformation comes from information transfer mm. and good choices. Yeah. That now we have to overcorrect back to the other side. But the beautiful thing is we don't have to go backwards. I, I And I really feel like this is happening because you see the words brain science in like everything right now. Um, it's like anxiety. We'll talk about brain science. And it's like productivity. We're going to talk about brain science, like cooking and brain science. And it, it, it's everywhere. But what it is, I feel like, is God calling us back to something that's been true the whole time. Yeah. And he is just saying, now I'm going to help you silly Westerners and modern people (laughs) hear it with the words that you made up the science, because I designed you this way. And so this idea is that we've been a primarily left brain dominant church. And that's because the left brain is the logical cause and effect side of our brain. It's where we actually form thoughts. It's where we speak. And then our right brain is the place that all of the other things happen. And it's actually the primary part of our brain because thoughts travel in a specific pattern. And so if you think about where sensory input happens, um, you can slow down to half speed for all this if it helps, because it's been like, I've been through it five times, so I could actually say it out loud. Uh, The idea is that sensory input happens all over my body and a thought travels through my brainstem, the very primitive, ancient survival part of my brain, this one that's keeping me alive. And then it goes through the right back part travels to the right front part, moves to the left front, and then the left back. And literally every thought we have goes in that pattern. Mm -hmm. And so the right brain is primary and predominant also because it functions faster, about 15% faster than the left side of our brain. Because also... What's faster, a picture or a word? Well, a picture. And yep. guess what? The whole right side of your brain functions in pictures, memories, emotions, feelings, and attachments. And that's the idea. It works faster. It works first. And it also governs things like... And this is a crazy thing to say, but it's actually neurologically true. It governs your character. It's who you are when yeah. no one's looking. But it's also who you are before you have a chance to act like who you think you should have acted like because you didn't Mm -hmm. do any thinking. The guy cut you off and then you flicked him off. That wasn't your left brain. That was your right brain. (laughs) You know, it's this like it's the quick part of you because it's the one that's baked into who you are and it functions on a different level than the left brain, which is what we primarily aim at. This is a book that you read and you don't even finish it and you start explaining it to others, which which is hilarious. Let me tell you how the brain works. Because uh, the first few chapters, they do an excellent job of giving you a yep. tangible way of how this works. The way I've been explaining this to my friends is it's like 
when you bite your into a cookie, right? Mm. And you take a bite of that cookie and you you taste how it tastes, but then eventually it gets to the other side of your brain and you realize, oh, this tastes just like my grandmother used to make it, right? Bingo. You taste yeah. it first before that memory comes to you that says yeah. like, oh, this tastes like X, Y, and Z or when you're listening to music, right? And mm-hmm. you're taking it in and then you're like, oh, this reminds me of when I was at that concert or when I was in this moment or mm-hmm. I was, you know, had this experience like... Uh, one of the things it talks about is how our right brain goes six uh, revolutions a second, whereas yep. the left brain only does five. And so um, you're feeling way more faster than you are thinking yeah. about in processing information. So, yeah. Well, and it's incredible because what that tells us too is that it's as simple as even like I, I feel grandma's house. Yeah. Before I, f- I realize what I'm thinking. So what the left brain is constantly trying to do is make sense of all the stuff it just experienced on the other side. And yeah. so what you're doing is you're trying to catch up always. And that's why the ancient poets and the whole entire Bible, and that's why there's so much poetry in the Old Testament too. If you think about it that way, it's like, we can't explain it to you. So we're going to write a song. I can't explain it to you. So I'm going to, I'm going to craft it in a poem because it's this other side of us that says, I don't, don't say it. Like, don't describe it. I want to feel it because it's such a deeper part of us. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, let's say if if it's not obvious, what is the issue then with left brain discipleship? And I, I, yeah. You know what's interesting about this is I don't think anyone purely does left brain, but I think right. we develop systems that are way more left brain than they are right, which yes. I think we're going to get into. But so yeah, what's the we're issue with left brain discipleship. Well, and the issue of it is that we're intentional in all our left brain activities, mm-hmm. and we're unintentional with most of the right brain, or we understand that it's important, but we actually we just way underestimate how important it is. And the problem is that all the left brain activities that we do, and so when we think about left brain, we think, again, logical. So we think a good message on the weekend, like we're touching pieces and parts of the right brain, a good story taps into the right brain, an actual emotional thing that drives us home and engages my emotions and my beliefs at the core of me. That's all right brain stuff. But somebody saying, these are the six reasons why, that is all left brain and it's all informational. And so, so many of the things we do, even, even when we get in a group, that's a, a, a right brain environment, hopefully. But then what we do is talk about ideas yeah. and we do spiritual practices, but what are they? They're alone, which is primarily left brain because I'm trying to digest and understand the Bible. And, and so all of these things happen to be mostly left brain. And the problem is the left brain is good, but only in the fertile soil of right brain health. Yeah. And so this idea is that characters formed over here. And so if we're trying to form character with left brain activities, if we have forgotten the place where characters actually formed in the right brain, then we have no shot at the left brain things working. So it's almost like we're bailing out a sinking ship at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And let me read two quotes from the, from the book that I think really explain this mm-hmm. well. It says left brain discipleship emphasizes beliefs, doctrine, willpower, and strategies, but neglects right brain, loving attachments, joy, emotional mm-hmm. development, and identity. And then one other one is if I want to obey Jesus, I need to focus on right brain skills that help me love him and receive mm-hmm. his love. My behavior yeah. will then take care of itself. Our brains are designed to change us through love. And I I just love, he does a really good job of using scripture in this to to show you even how Jesus is trying to teach beyond just what do Mm -hmm. you know? 
Um, yeah. Because, I mean, just like everything, it's always coming back to your faith, your love for me, love me, love others um, that, that we see in scripture. I, I think one other thing that's really worth, you know, talking about that, you know, when I hear this, what's the issue with left brain discipleship? You know, as we're answering this question, I can't help but get this out of my brain. It's going to sound like we're bragging on the Small Group Network founder here. But Steve Gladen, in his book, Small Groups with Purpose, one of the things he's trying to get through to us that he's repeating Mm -hmm. over and over again, you come to the lobby, you come to a line, you come to any of the trainings that we have. He wants you to have balanced groups, right? So they have the five purposes, which are notorious at Saddleback. So um, worship, discipleship fellowship, ministry, and mission. I'm sorry if I got those wrong. I know that every church (laughs) redefines those differently. But if we're purely focused on discipleship, we're missing out on those four other areas. Like we've got to get out and share the word with others. We've got to um, use our gifts that he's given us um, to mm-hmm. love others and love God. And we need to express that love through worship. And yeah. I, I just think it's one of those things that like, it's just a great example right off the bat of being able to be more holistic inside your group. So be thinking mm-hmm. about like, it's great that you want to educate your people of your church. But if you're just trying to educate them, I think you're missing out on mm-hmm. them getting the full experience of what God might have for them. Yeah. Well, and the reality is too, if you look at the the model of Jesus, he would send them out, send the disciples out, let's say, and then they would come back and then they would say, whoa, this thing happened. It was crazy. And whoa, wow. And he was like, yeah, that was crazy. That was really cool. And then he would say, I'm going to teach you a quick thing. And it's a nugget because they're walking with an experience. They've grappled with it. They've wrestled with it. They've probably been hurt by it or confused by it. And then he connects with them in the moment, brings it back to that. And then, and this is later in the book, even he, he gives this example, but then he goes, let me explain what you just experienced. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think this, the, the whole, like, are you left-brained or right-brained? Never ask that question again. You are whole-brained, whether you like it or not. It's just how healthy yeah. each side is. It's not like a, oh, I'm more logical. I'm left-brained. Everybody's the same. It doesn't, it doesn't, you got a whole brain, but <laughs> let's hope this, this idea. Let's hope. Um, but the idea is, it's just like your thought pattern. Yeah. You have an experience and lodge it in there as an experience, and then explain it with the left. And that's actually a really good example. Is we actually have to give people experiences. It's not like well, creatives are right brains or emotional wishy washy poets are right brains. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Everybody's right brain. It's not emotional. It's not overly wishy-washy. It's not creative. It's experiential. Yeah. It speaks the language of experience and this speaks the language of language. Uh, And so we're always trying to put words to our experiences. So that's a good model for actually how we can set up discipleship environments because who said discipleship was teaching information in the first place? You know, we so often define that as like, well, let me give you the theology to explain this experience you've had. It's like, well, that's the last 10% of discipleship because that's that how big that part of your brain is. Yeah. And a lot of this is too, is tracking with um, one of my other favorite kind of small group books is uh, Transformational Groups by Ed Stetzer and Mm -hmm. um, Eric Geiger. And Mm -hmm. he really walks through, or they really walk through how it's not about knowledge transfer. It's Mm -hmm. not about behavior modification. And I love how he uses the rich young ruler. And I can't remember the other example that he uses Mm -hmm. because the other one's like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And the other one's like, what do I need to know? What do I need to know? But it's about transformation. It's about that faith in Christ, that that obedience that comes with that um, and accepting his his grace um, that's there as well. 
One, allowing your trust structure to change, right? So we talk all the time, and this has been like a massive realization for me over the last yeah. 18 months or so. It's like, we talk all the time about, hey, it's not about progress. It's, it's not about, it is about progress. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. It's not about behavior modification. It's about transforming the heart. The, the heart has to change. And we like, oh, it's out of the over, overflow of the heart. The mouth speaks. And then what do we do? We tell people, we well, should probably stop doing that. Yeah. Well, we give people behavior modification or like, well, let's give you some information. That wasn't even in the thing. That wasn't one of the two options. What am I, what, how does a heart change? And this actually gives us the information that just illuminates and turns the prism on what, what Jesus has been saying the whole time. Cause he says, yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll be obedient. You'll do what I say if you remain connected to me. And we're like, yeah, if I believe and think that I am connected, no, no, if it's, a, if it's, I'm a deep, a deeply attached to you. If I have a, a, a clear love relationship with God and with the people that now embody God around me. And so we just have to know where transformation happens. Yeah. And it's not this conceptual place called the heart. And your heart's also not something you can put into words. It's an actual part of us. And we have to learn how to tap into it or else we'll miss out on so much of, of what God is trying to, to give us. Yeah. So, yeah. So good, Tommy. So this is so fun. I love this book, man. So, good. <laughs> so, all right, before we get going here, let's take a break to hear from Jason. Happy fall to all you small group point people out there. Jason Banzoff here, Group Talk producer, and we are getting closer and closer to our big event of the year. This is going to be something you are not going to want to miss. The Small Group Network is very excited to present the Fall Virtual Lobby on October 7th. Our biggest and most popular event of the year is now going to be a virtual event this fall. The theme for the conference is leadership and will feature main session speakers Bill Donahue, Dave Alford, and more. We will also be hosting over 10 breakout sessions, all of which will be available on demand following the live event for all registered attendees. Come ready for world-class leadership development, amazing breakout sessions, plenty of discussions, and Q&A time, and a chance to make some great new friends. Check out our Facebook group or visit smallgroupnetwork.com forward slash virtual lobby. Again, that's smallgroupnetwork.com forward slash virtual lobby to register. Now back to Reading Lens. Welcome back. Today, we're going to talk through four ingredients necessary to develop and maintain vibrant transformation and community. And so let me just start by sharing what the four are, and then we'll dive into each one as we go along. But let's start up front with what they are. So the first one is joy. And it's that true joy is found in connection and relationship. The second one is attachment, um, which they use the word hesed. So you're going to hear this word hesed a lot. And um, we'll get into what that means. But it's hesed love of securely attached communities. Mm -hmm. The third one is group identity. And group identity is uh, based in the character of Christ. And then the last one is healthy correction, which is a culture of uplifting healthy correction. Mm -hmm. So let's start mm -hmm. with joy. Why is joy an important ingredient to our transformation? Yeah, I, this was fascinating because mm -hmm. what I learned right away, because uh, they lead with it right away, is not like an idea of why joy is important. It's just the fact that our brains have specifically designed circuits and pathways in them that are all at the back right, right? They're in this center, this part of our brain that is almost is one of the first parts to develop. Uh, it's actually the first, this is amazing, it's the first thing that a baby starts to be able to realize besides, am I going to like survive or not? Uh, that's the first thing. But then the moment they come out and are like, what is the world? A baby starts to learn that somebody can find joy in me or disgust. And there's no in between. It's insane. And it's 
terrifying to be clear. But how do you transfer joy to a baby? Security? Yes. Food? Yes. Smiles. Like it's literally the, one of the most basic things in our brain, the circuitry that our brains are built upon. The rest of our brain develops over the top of the circuitry that is based on smiles happy eyes (laughs) and this is all like how it works and it lights up like crazy when we get smiled at and we see happy eyes like oh somebody's glad to see me and i can tell and also uh, a warm welcoming voice like it's those things that are the rest of our brain and our identity is built on it is crazy and so this facial circuitry is that's why you walk into a room and you're not sure if you know anybody and you're going to a party or get get together or a small group and what do you do you desperately scan the room for somebody that you know, because then they look at you and they go, Oh, Hey, and they smile at you. Yeah. And you realize it's all going to be okay. Somebody cares that I'm here. Yeah. And all of that is pictures. It's all smiles and voices and feelings. And none of it is somebody going, okay, I'm going to walk into the room and then, okay, well they, okay, I think they're happy to see me. You don't think that you just know that because you have designed circuitry just for that. And it is amazing and that's the place that joy comes from like it's not a feeling it's not emotion it's not an idea it is that experience that somebody is glad to be with me yeah 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 i love too in the book how they linked it to how god does this for us and this was a really important verse when i was growing up because i remember our lead pastor used to repeat this all the time like this was part of his benediction every single sunday Mm. but it was um it's from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. You've, I'm mm-hmm. sure you've heard this, but it's the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious mm-hmm. to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Like it, it's just a beautiful ex- example of that joy as well. Yeah. It's just so fascinating. Did you find it interesting too when he was talking about how our brains are also smart enough to know yeah. a screen and... Uh-huh that how much we need like actual physical face in front of us that like to truly experience that joy. And that's another just thing adding on to how this like screen addiction is actually hurting because Mm -hmm. our our brains realize it's not necessarily real. It's just not the same for those who aren't watching. I'm using like air quotes, but (laughs) which is ironic because all my guests are over. over That's true. Um, but, but you know, uh, no, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's incredible how good our brains are deciphering, like what yeah. it, what they really need. And because our hearts have been desperate for that same joy, like desperate for it, like our identity is built upon it. So we've been desperate for it since the first moment we were here. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that the best thing that our brains do is decipher, is that a real smile or not? And is somebody really here? And is that the real thing? No, it's not the real thing. And like our brains have not caught up with what Zoom is. And that's okay. It's still a better, it's a better tool than like a text. It's a richer medium, but there's literally nothing that replaces somebody smiling at me in person. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And then some other things to highlight in this chapter that I thought were really important is interesting looking back on my own journey. I wish I had more time to share this, some of these stories Mm -hmm. and I'm sure we'll get to them in future podcasts. But um, I love that he talks about, so feeling joy means our right brain is functioning smoothly. Like Mm -hmm. I've definitely had periods where I've been Mm -hmm. in ruts and I can tell you that I'm not experiencing joy at all. And not just like I'm in miserable situations. It's just that like, 
that feeling numb, feeling burnt out, like, and I'm sure others in ministry, maybe you felt that way before. And so like, use that as a guardrail, like, man, I can't experience mm-hmm. joy anymore. And sometimes it's a protection me- mechanism where, you yeah. know, I'm trying to shield myself from the loneliness I'm feeling or shield myself from um, the disappointment or, uh, you know, those negative emotions. And when you start mm-hmm. f- shielding yourself to negative emotions, you do it to the other side as well. Um, yeah. So, you know, something to, to really think through. And then the other thing it talks about too is like trying to do emotionally taxing work with an empty mm-hmm. tank is like running a marathon without even yeah. without eating food for a month. Eventually your body will shut so down good. out of lack of energy. Oh, so it was just so obvious at that point. And, and the amazing thing is too, that marathons are hard. And so yeah. I think that's a good example of also what joy is. And we always talk about, I think in the church, you know, like the joy is not happiness. We're not looking to be happy all the time. We're going to have joy. It's much deeper. And then we try and make it into words and we're like, okay, I can't really describe the difference. You know, it when you see it, but yeah. the fact is you actually know it when you feel it, but that's because the circuitry joy doesn't come from a decision that I make. I can't send a thought from my left side to my right side that says, it's okay, be joyful. This is not a thing. It's physically impossible. Joy is a relational experience. I was going to say feeling and then I was going to say emotions. None of those. It's a Joy is literally a, a neurologically relational experience that only comes through relationship. And it's relationship with God, an active and real and personal relationship with God. But also, and this is a theme throughout the whole book, and it's it's what I've realized is is the beauty of all of this is what did God do to send the best message and finally make the world right? He became a person with a face. And then what did that person with a face do? He left and he said, here's the baton. It's yours now. And then what did he say? He said, you're my messengers. No, he said, you're my body on earth and bodies have faces, faces. <laughs> and so literally the face of God shining and it's like, just blowing my mind. The face yeah. of God shining on a person is, is literally, I'm going to take a big swing at this is not ever. It's really big ever made complete until the face of a person who represents him has also smiled at you. Like he <laughs> yeah. never, I, I'm just, I got to do it. And we're groups people. It's yeah. just like, this is preaching, man. Right. So, but, but literally it means that we get to speak on behalf of God, not with words, but with a, a smile. It's amazing. Yeah. We just get to be there and then represent God in that moment. And that is how he designed it. And that is the completion of it because also he never separated the love of God and the love of people. We have to love both and we have to experience love from both or else both of them are incomplete on yeah. their own. And it's like a game changer when you experience, when you start to realize all that, it's like, this matters way more than I even thought. And I, I thought it mattered a lot yeah. <laughs> before. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also sitting over here smiling because I'm having this thought of, I think so much of joy and I relate it to Christmas. And uh, Ah, that was good. (laughs) This this story's going to mean a lot to to my coworker, Sarah, because she starts watching (laughs) the Hallmark Channel in like July. Yes. But, and I'm like, I'm a Grinch when it comes to Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. But like thinking about this chapter and the joy and God's intentions with that, it really makes me then like singing joy to the world is going to be so much different now and what it provides to people and what, what that message is, which is probably what I should have picked up on Christmas long ago. Um, But there's, 
we'll save the rest for the counselor, you know, but yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, to take a dark turn on that though, um, <laughs> Did we get darker than because, <laughs> because why not? Well, but the, the reality yeah. is too, like so many of my experience or feelings around Christmas or all of that nostalgia is built in all of this relationship, right? Like that's why it's so good. It's not because of the colors and the lattes and the whatever and the pumpkin spice. Blah, blah, blah. Um, it's none of that. It's because of the feeling surrounding it that's all relational. And that is why, this is the dark turn, that is why the majority of relapses happen mm. at Christmas time. Yeah. Because the experience of actual joy that's relational and how we were designed for it, the loss of that is absolutely by far clearly the most devastating thing not just for a soul like for the human brain that runs the rest of you it is it is actually functionally and physically destructive loneliness is it is yeah it would actually kills people yeah. uh, to be really clear and so all of that is true and that's why christmas is such a big deal because yeah. we have all this nostalgia and it's all relational and then you take that away or somebody dies or the family like the divorce happens and it is yep. earth shaking so anyway yeah, so, dark turn my bad <laughs> well you went there so i'm gonna keep going but yeah. um let's keep going why not that's actually that's that's like my story right so my mm. parents divorced mm. when i was five and so christmas yep. for me was always no attachment it was constantly yeah. being thrown around like i need to get my time with this for this day and thing and just like i i just want us to all be one together right yeah. and it, it's interesting how long some of that stuff takes to actually surface but yeah. um i think that it transfers true. perfectly into this next point which mm -hmm. is attachment or hesed so hesed means it's the hebrew word meaning to endure covenant love another way to describe it is loving attachment like a family member mm -hmm. and it's translated in the bible several different ways so the different ways are great love loyal kindness loving kindness faithful love, you know, what's, what's to help to you in the section and why is it important? Yeah. Well, I love that he mentioned that to capture has said, uh, Paul in first Corinthians 13 says, well, it's like agape, which is the best word we've got now, but it's also like this. And he takes all of first Corinthians 13 to describe yep. this powerful force. And it's like, this is just love. And also it is the only thing that matters. I could do all these other things. If you think about it, you transfer some of those things that he says, I could do this, this, and this, but if I don't have love, if I don't have a deep attachment with God and others, I got nothing. Take that to all the left brain activities of the church and you got one stinger of a rebuke. Um, <laughs> ouch. Uh, but it's true. Like You can have a great sermon yeah. with apologetics, but if you don't have a deep abiding attachment and the experience of that attachment with God and with others, it doesn't matter. It's ineffective, too, when you think about it that one. So that. But uh, what stood out to me in this, too, is uh, actually what he said about the formation of the brain. Again, when you think about a baby's brain... Um, <laughs> essentially the prefrontal cortex, which is the last part of the brain to get worked on. It's the thinking part, but it also has the logical left side and the experiential right side. And the only way that is formed is by forming the backside of the brain first, right? So it's these unconscious parts. It starts with joy and it leads to this attachment. And literally the way that the frontal cortex looks on brain scans is it looks like three faces interacting with each other. And who are those three faces? It is a loving mother and a loving father mm -hmm. deeply attaching, giving themselves to 
a baby with no identity, no self-understanding. A baby doesn't know that they're a different person than mom and dad, literally. Like it takes a while to go, I'm my own per- I have a <laughs> hand, right? Yeah. And that's what that is. It's the brain building forward. And But those like that third face in the frontal cortex is the self-identity and the self-worth and the self-image of a baby being born out of the loving sacrifice and attachment of its caregivers. It's ridiculous. So it's this, I'm skipping to the next chapter already because like that's, (laughs) but that's where our identity comes from. And it's from this attachment. And it is, I love how he describes it as relational glue also. And this concept of loyalty, it's a loyalty that defies logic too, which the loyalty of God to stupid people like us that defies logic yeah and that's the same defying like defiant love that we're supposed to have that's why we pray for our enemies it's a relational glue Mm. that is so countercultural. it changes everything and it's the kindness of god it's the attachment of god it's the loving sacrifice of god that leads to our repentance it's not the understanding that well the complexity of my sin means that it'll probably have this effect i mean it's the kindness of god and the willing attachment of him to us that leads us to repentance, it's all just baked right in there. Yeah. And he just put it in our brains because that's how he works. And it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And let me read this quote. This I think this one's really good too of talking about attachment. It says, attachment is the strongest force in the human brain. It's not an emotion, mm-hmm. although we feel it strongly. And attachment runs deeper in the brain below willful control. Attachment is the best word scientists could find of, and this is what the point you talked about, of what glues people together and creatures to their parents. It produces enduring care for well-being for one another. Attachment is life-giving forever bond with no mechanism in the brain to unglue us. If God has an enduring love for us that brings us good, Mm -hmm. the only force in the human brain that can understand such lasting kindness and care is the brain's attachment system. Like just really powerful. Yeah, it's it's so beautifully written. Yeah, it's just uh, just like putting the thing together right now. uh, But you think about the difference. uh, What what's the difference of um, a, a human baby versus a deer? Right, a deer pops out, it's walking, it's eating, it's whatever. And it's like, thanks, mom. And it goes about its life. And it needs mom, but it doesn't need mom in an attachment kind of way. Yeah. Because they don't have that. It's not a gift that a deer has been given, right? Um, we have it. But if you think about, and, and, and this is, I'm skipping ahead to, it's the same chapter, it was a long, good chapter. Um, but this idea that like how we actually form attachments uh, as well. Like we're not doing it as babies anymore. So how do we form attachments? What are the, some of the fast tracks to it? And one of them is sharing weakness. And I love that where is attachment first formed when we are utterly weak and unable to care for ourselves. And that's like, we're weird creatures that we are born so pathetically helpless, but baked into our brains, baked into our biology, baked into the design of the human life and the human brain is this fact that weakness is the only fertile soil for somebody to provide attachment for me. Yeah. Because also I can't provide attachment for me. It's a gift that somebody else gives me. It's a gift that God gives me. Where? In my darkest moment, at the height of my pain, at the height of my sinfulness, that is the God, that's the the me that God want, chose to redeem. And he was waiting in my brokenness for me. And like, hey, when when you want to come over here, I'm I'm over here waiting for you. But you got I'm I'm over at rock bottom. Like come meet me here. Yeah. Um but that's the only place weakness is the only place that attachment really gets formed. And that's why it forms so strongly in a baby. And so it's incredible that this deepest part of us 
comes through. It's just interesting. Then you get a second Corinthians nine and you get to, to hear um, Jesus tell Paul, it is in your weakness that my strength is made perfect. And where does Jesus exercise his strength? Through the church, his body on yeah. earth. And so literally it's in my weakness. Like you can port that right over. It's a personal Great one, connection. like him and like Paul and Jesus thing. Yeah. But there's just no way that Jesus ever would separate the church from himself because he says, you are my body. And so there's this idea that also when I bring my weakness, that is where strength comes from because that is where attachment is formed. And that's the strongest force in the human brain. And it's why we get this ridiculous thing. I'm super excited right now. This is why we get this ridiculous <laughs> statement that healing doesn't come in these just two verses here. But like when I, when I confess my sins to God, I'm forgiven. And he is the only one that can do that on a cosmic scale. But I have to confess my sins to, to my friend and my brother or my sister. That's where I find healing. God has said, I've separated the two. They're not separated because we're all one. We're all one with each other as my, you know, Jesus and his father were one. Um, but it's healing when you get to look into the eyes of somebody and they say, no, I still love you, even though you're kind of an idiot <laughs> and, and, or you hurt me, but yeah. I still love you and I won't leave your side. And I'm actually going to sit here in there with you. Yeah. And I just, the power of that is unbelievable. And it's, and it's a little intense because that is a really high calling and the fascinating thing is, like I, I, I felt a, f- a few years ago, probably I started feeling a, a weird guilt and conviction that I was underselling and underpromising. Not because I was like, oh, I don't want to underpromise and overdeliver. Like that's cool. Um, but I wasn't able to to say with full confidence. Like I, I think you know, transformation happens best in the context of community. I said that a lot, and now I feel more free to say no transformation only. Happens in the context mm. of community. It's community with God, yeah, one on one. That's real, yeah. But it's also not the words of God. It's the Word who is a person, right? Like it's yeah. it's the Word of God being Jesus. It's a and it's like oh, it's a religion relationship, not a religion. No, that actually means like it's it's the person of God that forces transformation, and then it's the per, like the embodied person of God, which is the church, which is super intense. But like I started a few years ago calling people to the higher standard, like calling all of us, not the leaders anymore, but the people of our church as much as I could. Like you're in a group, man, you just, you walked into a high calling (laughs) because you are the presence of God in somebody's life. Yeah. Super intense. Yes. Super true. Yeah. And it was a game changer because it was like, people were taking up that mantle going like, yeah, that sounds like real purpose to me too. And it is. And it was really exciting, but it's also really intense. And I think I I shied away from it for a long time, but I don't feel like I have to anymore. Man, so good, Tommy. That's why I feel like uh, usually in the episode, I tell people to rewind and go listen to that again. That was just like (laughs) that one home run, man. Great job. Uh, Well, that's Um, just long in the making and took me a long time to like be brave enough to to, to yeah. figure this all out. And then somebody just wrote a book and gave me yeah. all the words for it. That was helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate that. He gives, this is one, he gives a few small group tips throughout this a little bit. And then one of them mm-hmm. from this section mm-hmm. is that like Hesed doesn't grow automatically in small groups. Leaders and members of the group yeah. need to be taught the importance of it. Um, yep. And that curriculum must make relationship building a centerpiece of the group curriculum instead of an afterthought. Yep. I really, yep. I really, really enjoyed that as well because, um, those relationships have got to form before we're going to get to correction, which is, which is coming up here uh, in yeah. a second. Well, but, and, and it, it really does help so much because it 
it starts to to mean that if this is really the foundation for all the other stuff, and most of the other ministries in our churches potentially are left brain dominant, we actually maybe need to swing and go, well, you know, 80 out of the 90 minutes of our group, are we going to talk about ideas? Or are we going to talk about how we can keep forming this attachment between each other? Yeah. What is a group? Is it a cooler way to do information transfer and a more personal way to do information transfer? What if it wasn't that? What if it wasn't a a better way to understand an idea, which yeah. I've sold it that as that for a long time. You want to really understand this? If you want to really apply it, personal life, personal life, individual, blah, blah, blah. Well, the other people will help you do that. Yeah. That's probably not a good enough sell. What if it was like, if you want to be trained on how to be the human that you were created to be and also become a real friend, not just to these people, but everybody else, this is friend training. That's what we do in groups. I, I started calling it that. It was super confusing for people. And I was like, <laughs> no, but really, the goal is to help you become a real friend who understands yeah. people and how yep. to love one another and brings it everywhere else. So it's like it became a training ground for this side of the brain and a training ground for relationships so that they could bring that healthy healthy relational skill. It's not skill, but relational experience even, but infect the other people around them that are toxic or that yeah. are terrified of vulnerability. Well, we're going to actually train that here so you can go do it elsewhere. And it was like... It was night and day difference because it, it set new standards and it set new goals and it was it was really exciting. Yeah. Um, but that's that's the idea. And I loved that he built these in order. So in terms of small group tips, it's like if you're not creating a high high joy environment, mm-hmm. you have blocked the rat. You can't have a said without joy. Yeah. Are your groups fun? Yeah. Seriously. Like, <laughs> do you think a party? This is. I did this. It was a little facetious and annoying when I started saying this a long time ago, but it was like, do you think a party is as holy as a Bible study? And if your answer is no, redefine what a party is. Because a party is a chance to just enjoy each other. What could be more beautiful than that? Well, Bible study can be, but also put them together, man. Like make it fun, laugh a lot, make jokes, but also just enjoy each other and get to know one another. That is actually a holy experience. Um, And that's why partying is holy. All right, let's take a quick break. Then share how we take this joy and attachment and bring it into our groups through group identity. Mm -hmm. Let's jump into group identity. So what do we mean by group identity and why is it important? Yeah, it means something political, right? (laughs) I've heard this in a bunch of political circles recently. And it does. They they execute on this perfectly, but go ahead. Yeah, Yeah, seriously. This is a challenging chapter because it takes a concept that feels like an afterthought or feels like a thing. Oh, I don't want to, don't don't do group think, right? Actually, all your brain really does is group think. Uh, This side of your brain, it's what it's wired for. It's the fact that every single thing, right? The pattern of a thought forms a group identity. And then it's the question. And this was so cool. The question was really simple. The question my right brain asks in any situation is what do my people do Mm. in this situation? First of all, who do I identify as my people? Great question. And how do we help people identify the church as my people, right? It's great question. And it's Joy and has said, joy and attachment. This is an easy answer. But uh, what do my people do in this situation? And that's the first reaction that we have. And it's unbelievable. And it's because the right brain was working so much faster and it's working first. And it just literally scans through. I think of the cover flow on a Mac. And if you don't have a Mac, I'm sorry. But the, <laughs> the thing that I never use in the finder, right? You could do the list, you could do the columns, 
or you could do the boxes and you could do cover flow, which is just a bunch of like album covers or pictures or folders. And on an iPad or whatever, you could just go and it scans through all the folders and you're like, I can't see these. Why would I use this? But that's what your right brain does. Instead <laughs> yeah. of thinking, well, let's get there logically. What should I do? There's no I. Yeah. It starts with we. What have I seen in the past? My mm-hmm. group identity is born out of the examples and imitations that I have to go off of to go, who do I identify with? What do we do? And we do it really quickly. And that is why this is the perfect example. It's why we do so many things like our parents, even though we vowed to never do them again. It's because the majority of examples, what do I do in that stressful situation? What do I do in that challenging or scary? When my fear gets unlocked too, my limbic system kicks in and starts protecting me from what it feels like death. This is another book, but it's like, then it like everything shuts down. It says left brain take a chill pill. There's going to be no thinking. I'll protect us. And the right brain just goes, oh, we got this. Take yeah. the best example and hopefully find the one with the least harm. And it's like, you got a lot of examples of your parents, even though you hate what they did in, yeah. the, in a lot of cases. And so it just picks a picture and it says, yeah, yeah. I'll do that. And all of this is informing our character. Instant. Right. Yeah. So this this group identity yeah. and that's is, what our is, character is. Yeah. And and this is why it plays such a crucial role in our groups because you know, we are all trying to live this out. Mm-hmm. The other thing that he talked about too is, you know, Western culture, like our identity is individualistic, especially here in America. Like we love our individual freedoms. And so mm-hmm. this is can be countercultural to that as well, that we're gonna have this this group think or yep. um thinking in terms of group values as as well. Yeah. Um, I I really love it. It's it, and the, the wonderful thing about it too is it doesn't take the responsibility away from the no. individual. It doesn't take nope. the responsibility away from my self identity. I have to have a self identity. I can't just be informed by the group. But my self identity is the words that I put in so many ways to the group identity that I have. And my group identity is different than anybody else's because I have so yep. many groups and I have so many attachments and all these things. And some of them are really destructive. Mm-hmm. So what group am I a part of? Like if, if, uh, if Republican or Democrat is one of my primary groups yeah. in the moment, I'm going to go, I see somebody's pain. And especially because pain is like pain, your pain makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm going to go to my default. And what's my default? I'm going to pick my group, especially the one that's the most emotionally charged, could be a political one. And I'm going to pick that. And I'm going to, instead of responding to your pain, which is what Jesus does, right? He enters into our pain without reservation. He's like, I'm in. You can't hurt me with your pain. I'm okay. I'm just here for you. We get into protection mode and just do what makes us feel good, which is like, well, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, that or easy and solutions, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's super. It's super hurtful, and yeah. that's why we've seen so many bad examples of group identity. It's because it is absolutely the most powerful thing to tap into because it's born yeah. out of these unhealthy or healthy attachments, and it's unbelievably effective. Yeah. So, how yeah. do we pull this group identity into our groups? Yeah, uh, I loved the example that he gave. One yeah. of the primary ones, and it was it was just say we are blank we are people who blank and they had this they, mm-hmm. they talked about this you know uh, identity statement that was all we are and they said it every time they were together and they would do it in different ways and they would revisit it and they would do it as a group and just the fact that they could do that together was starting to inform these values they came up with the values too together and so they would customize it together and sometimes it was based off a situation that was really challenging and nobody had a context for and they did it wrong it was like they brought it to the group and the group was like well let's look at the character of jesus because our group identity and this is what i love 
and then we'll get back to the positive thing or the, <laughs> the practical thing. But if you think about it, if everything is images of the people around me and we are a line of just like, I'm just imitating whatever, the more we can form to the, the church and become this group identity together, the more we are literally just a cascade of mirrored reflections of Jesus himself. Because who did the disciples imitate? Jesus himself. And who did everybody else imitate? The disciples. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so we are a direct descendant, neurologically, whatever, I don't know, um, but of the imitation of Christ. And that means we can imitate each other because that means we're all coming back to imitating Christ. And that's why the central figure has to be Christ too, because otherwise Mm -hmm. we'll just, we'll distort it and malform it so much and it'll be devastating. But if it's yeah. always centered on the person of Jesus, we actually have something to come back to and we can conform to that. And it is, it is so cool to think that we are just in the last, you know, the, the cutting edge of that yeah. line of, of group identity. And I, it's amazing. But they, they do this in their groups. Well, go ahead. You go first. Yeah, I really appreciate too in this book too, where it talks about like this one can be dangerous where like if you, if you, if you don't do it properly, you're going to, you can reap bad fruit from this as well. Um, So it it talks about being cautious within that. But let me read the uh, we are statements that he recommends. So it's we are people who would rather listen than speak. We are people who see what God is building in others. We are people who spontaneously love our enemies and return blessings for cursing. We are people who remind each other who we really are wherever we forget. And then this one, I love this last one. We are people who get our group identity from the character of Jesus, which is what you just spent time explaining. The origins of that. I love so. it. At, well, and and the cool thing is too, you don't have to make this um, weird chanty thing. One of the ways that, um, and we did this before I even I got to mission. It was eight years ago, and we were already doing this in some cases. And I, I just was like, "This is great. Let's keep doing that." It was for a totally different reason, but it had this unintended consequence. And now I'm like, I would double down on this. Uh, was that with every single group? Not just as they were learning to be a group and meeting for the first time, it was literally every group forever was required to do this one thing. And they were well, a few things, but this one thing, and it was read a group statement before their discussion. And the primary idea was that they, it would it would keep the ground rules clear, creating the right structure to create a safe and the expectation of safety and grace. Yeah. Um, so we know what's on and off limits. But I started as I shaped it over time too. I made it a little more character like every time. And it was always, I tried to include a reason. And so it was like, we start in on time because we respect each other's time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I do respect your time. I'm not yeah. the only one that matters here. I'm and it was that. things like that. And it's like, <laughs> oh, it's so seriously. I, I threw it in the show notes, the old one that, you know, we used to mission, but it was like the, the power of it was so cool because it was literally calling everybody back to even it was, it was just, ground rules for the discussion. Yeah. And I would blow that out now and and make it to, I'd probably end with a character only thing and a group identity only thing, but I'd still keep these ground rules for discussion. They're, they're money. But, um, but it was so powerful because it was like, Oh, uh, blah, blah. sorry, we don't do that. And if, it's, if somebody could self-correct or if the leader was correcting too, it wasn't like you don't do that. Cause I said, so it was like, Hey, we agreed we don't do that. And that doesn't feel offensive in no. the same way a little bit, but it was like, you're right. We did. Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's move on. Yeah. I think support groups do a really great job of this too. Cause man, do they do a great job laying out ground rules of who we are and who mm-hmm. we aren't. And then yeah. also just reminding them like who we are in Christ, I think is just something that they yeah. really nail that we should, we should pick up on. And I think it all yeah. leads to this last point, which is 
really beautiful thing. So the last ingredient is healthy correction. And the beauty of this one is that, like I just said, all three of those lead up to this one. Can you explain that to our listeners? Of Yeah. Honestly, this is the best, the best chapter on correction, rebuke, whatever it is yes. that I've ever read. It's so challenging it has, too, at the same time. It is. It is because yeah. it's so different. Um, and it requires more of me than before, which is, well, if God brings up the whatever, like, ah, I brought it up by bringing it up in you. So go do something about it. Yeah. Like keep your brother from falling into sin. Like you fell in, you get him out. He's not getting himself out. Mm -hmm. I'm actually required to get him out. So, but I can't take responsibility for him, but yeah. I do have a responsibility to him. Anyway, healthy correction, their whole, the whole idea behind it is that it has to work in a specific pattern that follows these things in the brain. Because if you, if you, bypass or kind of deny what the brain needs to make a different decision and be corrected. Like that's not a happy thing. Nobody wants to be corrected. And so, um, if you deny the brain and the heart and the person, what the, what it needs, joy, attachment, and, um, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, okay. and a group identity. If you miss those, Three, you're actually never going to be able to do the correction yeah. and it's going to fall on dead ears. And so the idea is that it was in, instead of all the other ways we could possibly do it, it's the same pattern every time. And it's actually the way we see Jesus do it over yeah. and over. He has incredible examples of it. But it's this idea that I'm going to reaffirm that I take joy in our relationship. I'm glad to yep. be with you and that nothing can change that I care for you. Yeah. And this it's kind of starts there. Yeah. The other thing I think that they really try to point out is this misconception that it's information that's going to change someone's behavior. Yeah, and oh, absolutely. Man, do we see this? So, like, we see this with like finances, where we think, oh, if we just if we just educate them on this, it'll change their behavior. Yeah. Like, no, it doesn't. Just tell them, <laughs> tell them Ramsey's seven baby steps, and then yeah. they'll be fine. Yeah, they'll right? be fine. Uh, no, so this is what they say in their book. It says a common misunderstanding uh -huh. is that our character is defined mostly by moral truth and choices. When we see a flaw in a person's character, we think. They don't understand God's teaching and they're making bad choices. Yep. They just, don't, they just yeah. don't get it yet. Yeah. It's true that the choices were in, bad choices were involved, but the root impetus of our character lies elsewhere. In order to improve behavior, we need to change our values and update our stored examples and how we act. goes back to you're talking about your Apple example yep. with the filing system yes. and changing yeah. the libraries. Finally, it says, we cannot change our values directly. We must get them from our community and our group yeah. identity. Yeah. Um, this reminds me a lot of the story that it goes around on Facebook a lot is this, this like, I think the urban legend, or maybe it's real, I don't know, but it's this idea that this professor, uh, you know, his freshman class in the big lecture hall. And he's like, God doesn't exist. And you, this is why, and all the reasons. And then one kid's like, well, do you know, how do we know that you exist? And he like makes fun of the professor and then something about faith. And then, Oh, that person was, Albert Einstein, whatever. So, but this idea that there's this one guy, right? Mm -hmm. This one girl that's willing to stand up to all the whatever. And in the face of persecution, it's one person that it's just, it must be an, a, a, a Western American, like, yeah, that one person, that's who I need to be. Yeah. I need to be the one in the room that'll stand up for what's right and true and good. And then you get there and it's nothing at all the same. There's no persecution. You fold like nothing, man, <laughs> because that's a myth. Like there's nothing in me that wants to be the one person in the room and that's okay. 
Why would you be? That's why we have the entirety of the church history to go, I'm not the first one to do this. People died for this. They killed Jesus. It's okay if they make fun of me. And that's that first thing. But it's like, my strength comes from the people around me. It's my my strength is uh, like strength comes and is perfected in my weakness. I don't have to be something. We are something. It's it changes everything when you think about like that's a myth. That's not a real thing. My power comes from Christ embodied in all of us. Yeah. Um, so all right. So we'd be robbing you as a listener if we didn't talk about this one point in mm-hmm. this healthy correction. And it we were talking pre-tape as we were going into this, and we were talking about how this each blew our mind and Seriously. how we wanted to fight against this. But he talks about the difference between toxic shame and uh-huh. healthy shame. And to me, like Hearing that phrase, healthy shame, was like hearing, it's just a pure oxymoron. Seriously, it makes no uh, sense. This makes no sense. But maybe this definition will really help break this down for you, that that this kind of helped clear it up for me. So toxic is you are bad, right? Like you don't deserve this, you're bad, like you did something completely wrong. Whereas healthy shame is this is not who you are. And so this book, this... This section really walks through how we can use healthy correction to call people back to who they really are. And I think you really see this through Romans 3 through 8, where, you know, Paul's trying to correct them to let them know, like, you have a flesh side that is dead, and we don't need to listen to that. And you have this spirit side that is alive that we are, Mm -hmm. we are called to follow. And so, um, I think, I think that's one of those ones that, that, uh, that, sets this chapter up well. Yeah. What else would you add here with the, uh, the healthy shame? Toxic really shame? Did, it, it blew my mind because it's all in the mind. Like one of the things yeah. that, uh, you know, Michael Hendricks, the, the groups guys, like I, we got to call it something different. You know, yeah. we got to think of another word. What about if it's conviction and Jim Wilder, <laughs> the neuro guy was like, I'm sorry. I didn't design the brain. It's a shame circuit. It's built in. We can't do anything about it. And if we don't utilize it, it's not going to work. And so that idea that we have to tap into this so that people want desperately to be in the tribe, not because we'll leave them. That's an ultimatum, right? If you keep acting like that, you're out. It's an ultimatum. And that is desperately ineffective and, and evil. And it's awful. And that's not Jesus. But if it's like, you are in, therefore, I want you to do this because we are a people that do this. That is totally different. And that unlocks this deep desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, inconformed yeah. to the image of his body on earth. And that is where correction right. comes from, the motivation to change. Yeah. And I'm going to share with the example that's in the book that I thought illustrates this really well. And I realize it's not a small group example. It's a, it's more of a sports example, but you know, they're talking about this football player who had a bad penalty. And one of the things it starts with first is it talks about how, um, you know, I need to let them know, like, you are still part of us. You are still part of this team. Like I am with you in this. And so this is the, this is the, example they gave of what the coach would say during the correction as opposed to like you got this wrong you cost us a penalty now you're going to cost us the game like yep. that is toxic as in you are bad right mm-hmm. so this is an example that is the healthy shame <laughs> it's still yep. still hard to say that right it feels, <laughs> it feels, it feels like i'm swearing yeah. Um, yeah. it says our relationship is not at risk even though you messed up so that was the affirmation like you know our relationship we're still happy with you right Then I would say, you seem to have forgotten that we're not the kind of team that gets into little pushing matches when our feelings get hurt. Instead, we are learning to be men of character who can take an insult and walk away Mm -hmm. because our team is more important. This is a great opportunity for you to learn. Don't waste it. And I just 
Like what yeah. a beautiful example of that. Like I, I'm going to think about that a lot when it comes to like, you know, correcting my child, but I feel like yeah. I'm just going to be way too heated to be like, <laughs> like this is that not is who we question. are as Lindsay's. Yeah. We do not push our sister. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's why correction has to be done. That's why the law gets to come out of our eye before yeah. we get that sawdust out of somebody else's. Because the reality is if I bring my anxiety to your situation, I will damage you because I cannot get through that effectively. I can't call you to who you are because I'm actually forgetting who I am at that point. And we're not, neither of us are in sync. And so I have to actually manage my own anxiety around it so that I can bring a healthy self to correct yeah. you. And I love it too. It's not a cop-out, man. It is not... Because he's like, we need to be correcting each other much more often than we mm-hmm. do. And you have to challenge at the end. I love that line. This is a great opportunity for you to learn. Yeah. Don't you dare waste it. Yeah. He ends strong. In all of his examples, he's ending really strong. And I love yep. that because it's not like, oh, you're leaning on group identity. Yes. It should be personal responsibility. It is. Yeah. It's very much so. And I love but it. If you also notice an example, he's not using guilt to motivate them either. Yeah. And I think that's so much gospel in there too. And I love yeah. the way that we say this here at Hope and Grace. You know, we, we talk about grace and guilt when it comes to our discussions inside of our groups. And so we say, you know, as you begin to focus on application, it can be easy to fall into legalism, right? Like this is what I have to do. And sometimes I'm going to fall yeah. short of that. And it's crucial that we fame, we, it's crucial that you frame application as a response to what God has done. And yeah. not a work to appease him or receive his approval. And yeah. then as a result of that, like sometimes when you're working along legalism is there's no place for guilt in the life of a Christian. Christ has mm-hmm. paid the price for our shortcomings. Our response to that love is trust and obedience, not wallowing in guilt. Yeah. And like yeah. that has that has really helped our groups provide kind of a breakthrough. I think that's another thing I can mm-hmm. probably share in the show notes of like, it's interesting. I think we're both sharing what are our group discussion guidelines in a sense. Yeah, seriously. It's helpful. <laughs> Really we'll, we'll find those and, and pass those well, on. So. And, and uh, John 15, uh, and this is going back to a, a, a earlier chapter even, but, or maybe, I don't know, they all blend together because they're all like, it's all one big package. But, um, you know, in John 15, we get this idea of the vine and the branches. But when you put it in attachment language, obedience yeah. is something very different. And also our relationship with others is very different because that is a very individualistic thing in my mind. Like I need to stay attached to the branches or to the vine. And it's like, well, yeah. no, no. So instead of just love, you stay connected to me, abide in me. What does any of that mean? Stay deeply attached to me experientially yes. and obedience will feel like it's nothing. It'll just happen. Because yep. why would you want to act like somebody you're not? You're right next to me. And it's really easy to see who I am and who we are because you and me are the same now. We're one. There's no disconnecting us. I will not let you be cut off. And then also he says this line at some point, it's like then the relation, like the sap of divine love flows through those attachments because I am just as connected to the other branches as I am to the vine. And so this, this idea is like, hey, don't fall off the vine. I'm here too. It's we're going to stay connected with each other. And that is the power to be obedient. It's not even just staying connected to the vine. It's the fact that we are all connected to the vine. That is where the power to change comes from. It is fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, this might be the most dangerous question of all. Anything else we missed? (laughs) The rest of the book. (laughs) Um, About four more hours of stuff. No, I, I know it probably feels like 
whoa, do I have to become a brain expert? Uh, no, I, I have found incredible, uh, I, I found incredible joy in actually describing this to people because I think it speaks to them in a new way. And I, I, I love saying like, you were wired for this. Let me actually give you a reason why it's not what I'm going to lead with. You know, I'm not going to stand on a stage and announce something and go, okay, so here you have, here's how your brain is constructed. And that's why you should join a group. No, that's probably not the most compelling thing, but we can lean into this with so much more confidence and yeah. so much more clarity because we can use all of these outcomes mm-hmm. of the design of our brains. And we can lean into them with not just the confidence of scripture, but the confidence of the affirmation and confirmation that all of that is so true that it's built into us. And honestly, I like if you go back and read anything about the love of God, the face of God, the presence of God, because usually that's actually the face of God. So he goes through a great thing about that. Um, but anything about love, and you start reading it through this relational glue and attachment and undying commitment, you start using these words, they, uh, like the verses pop off the page. Yeah. And they speak to a part of me that I can't get to with like, well, the presence of God is with you. Congratulations. Nobody knows what that means. But God's face lights up when he thinks of you. I know exactly what that means. And those are the same because that's how we were built. And so we could speak yeah. this language over people and pray this way and call people to this thing in a way that ha- I, just, I just find so much more confidence in it in this way. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I would probably say that, that we may have missed, I, th- I would encourage you guys you're going to read this book. You're going to want to talk with other people about it. Mm-hmm. And what I would encourage you with is throw that into the small group network, Facebook page, or do a huddle in your area and ask people, Hey, let's read this book and let's get together and talk about it. I already know some friends that have already gathered together. Yeah. <laughs> I was a little shocked. They're doing like a chapter a week and going through it, which I think is a really wise way to do this kind of book. I'm Seriously. usually a big fan of read the whole thing and then do it. But as you can see, you end up with <laughs> yep. a very, very, very long podcast. But, yeah. <laughs> but I hope you guys enjoyed this discussion. Anyways, you, you're going to want to talk so much about this book too. And because it's written by a small group person, this is the thing uh, I love most about small group books. They give you questions at the end of the book for you to wrestle through. <laughs> I also think it's a really good book to read through with your staff. Like I've been trying yep. to push that we this be a staff book that we read because yeah. this stuff is applicable to every area of ministry. Um, I even love like t- the stuff it talks about how this plays into worship a lot. Um, you know, seeing the face to face and those kind of things. So, yeah. um, really great book. Be sure to jump into that. So, absolutely. All right, last thing, lightning round. Way we always end. What's one book you're looking forward to reading? Tommy? You know, in uh, reference to the last one we did and my first appearance of Tribe <laughs> by Sebastian Younger, Freedom by Sebastian Younger. Oh. I'm so, I, I, I keep am, getting I'm ads not done for with it, it yet. I'm actually, want to dive into it too. It is so good, man. It just is such a beautifully complex look at all of the nuance of this. It's really simple. We think experience of freedom and it is just not simple at all because nothing is and i love that so much and it speaks to our current moment a lot so Uh good very excited about it i just love too. you can he's he's an author you can trust that you know it's gonna there's gonna be some really good things in it so Mm. i'm looking forward to that too so tommy this was fantastic thank you for being such a pleasure man i love talking to you in general and it's great when we can just record it and hopefully it's helpful to somebody else i'll talk to you any day so (laughs) hopefully it helps 
Well, I'm Nick. We know at least Carolyn's listening, so that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, well, I'm Nick Lindsay, and I want to thank you for listening with us. Thanks, Tommy, for sharing your experiences. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There's actually a really special treat for you next week. As you can tell, we do it by the weeks here. Next week's one of those fifth weeks. So they're actually going to start a limited series that'll start next week. And it's mm-hmm. literally called How to Lead a Small Group. So this is going to be designed for your small group leaders that they can kind of listen into. Um, James is going to host that. I think you guys will really enjoy it. And the other thing I just have to plug in there too, because this is the last chance I get... I'm going to be leading a breakout at the October 7th virtual lobby. And I'm going to be doing it all on small group systems. I promise you, I'm going to have a handful of books that I'm going to recommend. Because when it comes to small group systems, I'm like, read this one, this one, this one, this one, and figure out how the context fits in your church. Mm -hmm. So try your best to, to be there. I highly recommend it. Ask your boss for that. I think it's three hours. And... I was telling Tommy before this, there's a lot of online conferences that aren't great. Mm -hmm. And we did the virtual lobby in the past and it was the best online conference I've been to. I don't say that lightly because I know what you're used to experiencing Mm -hmm. where you just like, you're kind of there, you're kind of not. This is a conference you actually get to be at because Mm -hmm. we are all in one big Zoom. It's the most impressive thing that you've ever seen because you can have 400 people in a room and not a single person is unmuted. I don't know how that works, but um, it's amazing. And then we do a bunch of breakouts and we all get to discuss what we talked about, which you don't get in these online conferences. So... Mm -hmm. You you have some other small group people. It's beautiful. We all know how to behave in these things. And it's really great learning environment. So I highly encourage you to be there um, for that. So Tommy, are you going to come join I us? I will. I will be okay. there. Cool. I'm going to make sure I can get you in. So. Super excited about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks for joining us. Remember, leaders are readers. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to Group Talk. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and get new episodes downloaded automatically. Also, if you enjoy this program, please take a few minutes to give us a positive rating on iTunes so that other small group point people can find us more easily. We encourage you to visit our website, smallgroupnetwork.com, to access our library of free resources, connect to a huddle with other small group ministry leaders in your area, read our blog articles, or join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget to use the hashtag SGNet when engaging with your social media channels. Thank you for your support.